Welcome back to The Spark. I'm Marquise Lupton. Dr. Cherie Livingston's journey from humble beginnings in the projects of Harrisburg ignited her passion for medicine. With a lifelong dream of becoming a physician, Dr. Livingston's early interest in women's health led her to start as a candy stripper at Community General Osteopathic Hospital at just the age of nine years old. Now, as the chair of the OBGYN department and member of the UPMC Litters Board of Trustees, she stands as a beacon of achievement and hope for young girls in the mid-state who aspire to become doctors. Notably, Dr. Livingston is the leading female robotic surgeon in Lancaster County and continues to defy the odds every step of the way. And I'm happy and proud to have her on The Spark with us to share her entire, well, maybe not entire, just some cliff notes of, of her remarkable journey. Dr. Livingston, thank you for joining us on The Spark today. Thank you for having me on the Spark this morning. Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, how how did your your upbringing um, in Harrisburg shape your journey towards becoming a physician? Oh, it had everything to do with everywhere that I'm at. I was uh, born and raised in the inner city of Harrisburg, and there's no question that. Uh, the community that I was brought up in helped to build the love and warmth and strength and courage that I have to uh, work in such a rigorous field. Mm. Uh, I grew up in a very matriarchal family. My 96-year-old grandma, who is in Harrisburg right now as we speak, oh, wow. living and thriving, uh, had four girls and four boys. And um, my aunts were, were wonderful. My uncles were amazing. My aunts were just wonderful folks. And they brought us all, the entire family brought us up to know and understand that hard work is extremely important. Mm. It's important to put one foot in front of the other. It's important to work together. And that really just put me on a path of um, just entering into medicine with with some fierceness. Mm. Oh, I, I love that. So what uh, what inspired you to pursue a career in in medicine, uh, particularly in women's health? I I. Well, I, like I said, I grew up in a very matriarchal family, and so <laughs> I, I, I love women. I do. I love women and um, just caring for them from puberty to menopause. Uh, as an OBGYN physician, I, I get to engage women and people and girls at every point of their uh, reproductive years. Um, and if they, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of reproductive justice. So just because mm. I say reproductive doesn't mean I uh, say that every woman or person should be interested in reproduction, but just uh, biologically taking care of uh, women during those phases play, play such a good role. When I was young, growing up at Sacred Heart on Cameron Street in Harrisburg, and then St. Francis on Market Street, uh, and then ultimately attending Bishop McDevitt, I, I had a passion for science. Mm. I, I fortunately was really good in biology, and my teachers really just poured gasoline on that, and they could see that, you know, this young human uh, was uh, interested in sciences, excelled at sciences, and I, I, I just fell into the trap of health and science and mm. uh, followed follow that pathway and went on to Philadelphia where I studied biology at St. Joseph's University and, and really, you know, took on this career in medicine. So um, let's let's take it back to uh, when when you're nine years old, uh, your first job in the industry, uh, we'll we'll call it. Uh, so um, as 
as a uh, um, candy stripper, um, what what did you do and why did you decide or matter of fact, how did you come to that decision at such a young age uh, to 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 pursue this and, and and apply it? And what is a candy stripper? So, yeah, a candy striper is Striper, just that it's a it's a it's a volunteer. It's a hospital volunteer. And now that we are sort of post covid, you don't see or hear much of uh, this because we had to really, you know, ration who was allowed in the hospital for safety purposes. But uh, back in the day, Marquise, as you and I say, uh, back in the day, you know, volunteers were studded all throughout hospitals. Mm. And uh, I grew up Catholic, St. Francis uh, of Assisi Church on Market Street in Harrisburg, really created this environment of service for us uh, Mm. because it is uh, really centered in a very uh, marginalized and vulnerable part of uh, Harrisburg. And one of the things that the church did for us was really instill in us the importance of service. And so my aunt, uh, Thelma, who hopefully will be listening to this later, she's the oldest girl in our family. We call her Aunt Sissy. Mm-hmm. Um, used to take me and her daughter, Chavon, out to Community General. And we would volunteer out there. And we they called us candy stripers because of the aprons that we had to wear oh. uh, to protect our clothing. And we would walk around going from room to room and just passing out water. That was our job. (laughs) And I'm telling you, just young people need to hear this, right? That something so simple is handing out water to um, ill and sick patients who are in the hospital and smiling and having them see uh, our our energy as nine and 10 year olders. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's all we did. We didn't, well, you know, obviously we weren't permitted to do much else, but we would take these little plastic canisters of water and make sure that the patients had their water filled. And I loved every bit of it. (laughs) I loved, I love seeing the looks on the faces of the patients when they were tended to. And it was in that moment, Marquise, where I learned the value of listening to people and how important it is. And in even my work with Black maternal health, mm-hmm. when we think about, and I know we'll touch point on this, but when we think about how to dismantle systemic racism and dismantle structural racism and address weathering that Arlene Geronimus talks about chronic stressors that are leading to chronic conditions in uh, people of color specifically, Mm. listening to marginalized communities, hearing what solutions they have, not just telling them our ideas of solutions. That's, it is in that candy striper moment when I was walking through the halls of Community General Osteopathic Hospital, um, where I learned the true value of listening. Mm, mm. So, um, so how how did this early exposure influence uh, you in in choosing this career path? Then, well, like I said, I was I was really good at math and science. Uh, my mom, who uh, is my number one fan, she. It really encouraged me to study. She would mm-hmm. she would just be so happy to see me come home from school and eat my snack and then really just jump right into the book. So having the love and um, 
standards of academics mm. early on and then intertwining that with the value of volunteerism it, it just dovetailed beautifully for me to walk into a career of medicine and i knew just as early that I wanted to go into women's health. Obviously, I didn't know what it was called, but I, I just loved being around women. When when I grew up, our weekends were not full of sitting on cell phones. We were gathered at my aunt's house mm. and gathered at my grandmom's house. And I was around cackling women all weekend <laughs> long, cooking. They were cooking and baking and just talking mm. and I learn, I say it over and over and, and I, I hope that the community understands what I mean, but I just learned to love women. Mm. And that shows in a lot of the initiatives that uh, I'm in uh, and have co-founded uh, with our, our flow organization founded by Tracy Jennings and co-founded by myself where, you know, the, the title itself, For the Love of Women, you know, when you think about uh, women's health and how it can start as early as puberty and, and matriculate all the way up to um, menopause and postmenopause, mm. these are opportunities to engage a very important and crucial part of our community. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in women's health. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we're going to uh, um, talk uh, more ab about um, uh, flow and about uh, your advocacy uh, for black maternal health on the other side of, of this break. Uh, but before we do that, um, what challenges uh, did you face uh, with this journey in becoming um, an OBGYN, especially the chair of the department? Yeah. So as a as a black person, as a person of color, the challenges that bestow, unfortunately, all of us are being marginalized in in our communities mm. and, and living in under resourced areas. Um, structural and systemic racism play an important role in uh, the barriers and disparities. And I encountered all of them. Um, I think that it is important to it. it in part on your listeners that um, we have overcome, we continue to overcome, mm -hmm. and we will overcome these disparities when we work together as all of us are doing. I know the work that you and your wife do, mm -hmm. your your mom, uh, the work that we're doing with Patients Are Waiting and the Diversifying Doula Initiative and Pipeline Dreams and Flow. Um, we our, our folks know the importance of working together. Our folks know and understand that um, we, we have, we will overcome, and we do it by really deconstructing the barriers that are in front of us. Mm, I, I love that. Deconstructing the barriers that are in front of us. Um, so um, your your role uh, um, in, in serving as a uh, role model uh, to, uh, to, to younger girls, how seriously do you take that? Uh, I, I take it very seriously. I think that it is important for uh, young girls, specifically young black girls to look through, uh, look in the mirror and see themselves. And for folks that are not, for the um, non-Black young girls, it's important for them to look through the window 
and see the work. So, you know, I, I, I value this phenomena of mirrors and windows, mm. uh, mirrors so that you can see yourself, windows so that you can see others. And I, I value that. So when we talk about, you know, me being uh, uh, someone that young people look up to, I, I want there to be a, a reason for all young girls to value what I do. Mm. Uh, if they're not culturally congruent, then they can look through the window and see the value of the work that other people, specifically black people are contributing to the community. And then for the culturally congruent young girls, young black girls, when they see me and the work that I'm doing, they know that they too can uh, you know, travel into healthcare careers and excel at those careers. Mm. So it's all about mirrors and windows. Uh, when I think about uh, my aunt, um, I, I always I refer to my mom and my aunt and my grandmoms almost, like all the time. It's just a thing for me. Uh, but uh, my aunt Yvonne Hollins worked uh, tirelessly in Harrisburg as an academician and uh, an administrator. And she laid a very solid groundwork for us uh, to, to follow and track. Mm. And that's, that's the benefit of um, community work that, you know, the next generation doesn't have to work as hard mm. as the, the one previously. That's, that's the benefit of generational wealth to, you know, track, get into a whole different conversation and track is so that, we can lay down the pathways and create blueprints. Mm. I focus on that word blueprint. Like, do you know the value of a blueprint? Somebody is saying that if you follow this pathway and I'm going to lay it down for you, it makes it easier, not easy, but easier so that you can precipitously reach your goal so that whatever is at the end point of your goal you can capitalize off of that goal, be it helping the community, addressing poverty, eliminating menstrual inequity, mm. diversifying medicine. We don't, that's why we, that's why we name patients are waiting what we did. Patients are literally waiting for us. There is no time. Mm. When we talk about black women being three to four times more likely to die in childbirth, we don't have time to perseverate on things that, um, that are, aren't, aren't leading to change, we have to get there quickly. Yeah. So why are we creating the blueprint? So that people can matriculate into their pathways quicker to address the issues that are on the other side. Yeah, you um you you dropped some um nuggets right there with uh, the Black Maternal Health. Patients are waiting. Uh, your flow organization, uh, uh, the doula, uh, um, um, uh, the uh, doula initiative as well. She is giving us the game, as I like to say, on on her beginnings in in Harrisburg and reaching the heights of, of becoming a OBGYN at uh, at UPMC. So. Um, Dr. Livingston, want to uh, uh, talk about uh, some of these initiatives uh, that you discussed. Um, you discussed uh, Black Maternal Health. You discussed Patients Are Waiting on um, the Flow Organization, uh, your doula initiative. Um, so just just as a whole, um, why, why did you d decide to be a part of and, and start these initiatives and organizations? 
So as an OBGYN physician, we get the pleasure of taking care of women inside of pregnancy, outside of pregnancy. I, a typical day in the life of an OBGYN is, you know, I may have patients in the office where I'm doing annual exams and pap smears and breast exams and ruling in or ruling out pregnancy or uh, providing birth control for those who desire. Uh, then uh, we have on-call sessions where I sleep in the hospital for 24 hours and leave my lovely family. And thanks to my amazing husband, he holds down the fort for me. Um, you know, and we're catching babies during those times, doing C-sections, vaginal births, running to the emergency room to address things like ectopic pregnancy or heavy mm. bleeding. Uh, and then a, a, another thing that OBGYNs do is we operate. So I do, as you said at the top of the hour, I do robotic surgery, tons of robotic surgery, prolapse surgery. So this is a day in the life, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but good things happen most often and sometimes bad things happen. And I um, unfortunately experienced maternal death mm. um, and it changed everything for me. It changed the trajectory of my uh, career. Uh, fortunately, I still keep in contact with the families, uh, but uh, it, it, it really impacted me. And I said, I want to change the pathway for all maternal death, but mm -hmm. specifically Black maternal death, because Black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth. Wow. And that in and of itself needs to be unpacked. Because as I tell my four children, when somebody makes a statement to you, I want you to ask five whys. Mm. Uh, black women are more likely to die. Why? Well, because they have more um, chronic conditions and obesity. Why is that? Uh, because they live in marginalized communities and uh, there are food, uh, there's food apartheid and, um, you know, lack of access to affordable care. Why? Like you, you have to, we, we as a whole must put a mandate on each other that whatever information we're told, if I can tell my four children to ask why five times, then that's, to me, that's the standard, right? Yeah. Because then you get to the crux, you get to the root of issues, and then you know how to fix them. Because if you're doing surface work, as we call it in patients or waiting, we don't do surface work. Mm. We're five questions in. And that's how we're able to uh, really address uh, health disparities. Our mission at Patients Are Waiting is to eliminate health disparities by increasing diversity in medicine. Since the 1960s, uh, the number of Black physicians and surgeons, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, is 5%. Oh, if we wow. represent 12% of the population, then why has that number remained unchanged at 5%? Right. And there are many contributors, but our job is to diversify medicine. And one may say, well, why would you want to diversify medicine? Well, studies show that if there's cultural congruence, meaning healthcare providers uh, have similar lived experiences to the communities that they serve, uh, there's an increase in preventive care. There's an increase in treatment adherence. So if the doctor says, hey, take these high blood pressure medications uh, that, you know, one is more likely to take them if there's cultural congruence. And third, uh, 
the community is more likely to participate in necessary research. Mm. Uh, we don't we don't want to just be the people who are researched upon. We want to be the researchers. Um, and it, in science, research is important, right? I need to know if this medication is going to cause harm or heal. I need to know if this vaccination is going to cause harm or prevent disease. Mm. So research is necessary, and it's important that research encompasses um, a diversity because you know I need just even biologically, it's important to understand how it impacts each of us. And so uh, that's that's how I got into this particular path of advancing Black maternal health mm-hmm. and. I just I want to see us birth better. I was um, I was in New York City last week uh, doing something very similar to to what I'm doing now. And one of the topics that came up was, you know, has has this been the case? You know, this this maternal health disparity has it always been the case? And I, I wanted to fall off my chair because no, we mm. we birth beautifully. Black people birth beautifully. Um, it is the inception of oppression that has led to the disparities that we see. Mm. And so, you know, with our diversifying doula initiative, uh, where we are trying to improve maternal health uh, through doula care, we're trying to touch point on that historical pride that we have, where we we know how to birth better so that we can bring joy back into black birth. Mm. And then when we bring that joy and health and safety back into black birth, we will improve all birth because no mom deserves to die. This isn't about just saying black moms don't deserve to die. No mom deserves to die because all children deserve their families. All families deserve their complete family members Mm -hmm. and all communities deserve that birthing person to reinsert herself or themselves back into the community to help that community thrive and strive. So yes, my focus is on improving black maternal health with the keen understanding that we are going to improve all maternal health. Mm. And, um, and and one thing um, uh, with the maternal health that you do um, is is your contributions uh, to the field of robotic surgery. Uh, now, I was I was amazed um, to hear that. I was like, Doctor L never told me that. Uh, so, uh, can you can you um, um, e- elaborate on your um, contributions to the field of robotic surgery? Absolutely. So robotic surgery is a tool that's used to uh, promote minimally invasive surgery uh, so that people can get back to work sooner, experience less pain, uh, have less blood loss. Uh, When I do a robotic hysterectomy, uh, some patients actually go home the same day. Oh, wow. Uh, And this this is we we see disparities in how we treat things like fibroids. Right. We know that um, black women are. more likely to have uh, fibroids than their white counterparts. Uh, Mm. There are many uh, theories behind why that is. Um, And and again, we want to promote uterine health. And that's one of the reasons uh, why we focus so heavily on um, addressing menstrual equity. With that said, robotic surgery affords uh, all people the opportunity to really bounce back quicker and, and have a safer surgery. And so uh, I started doing robotic surgery in 2009, 
And I, I fell in love with it. I, as, as some of my colleagues say, I have good hands. And mm. what that means is, you know, all, you know, some people just have a niche and are good at various things, right? I'm not good at everything, but I do have a uh, good surgeon hands and uh, I, I really just excel at it and do a lot of robotic surgery. Mm. Uh, there, there's a difference between benign GYN surgery and, uh, and uh, GYN oncology. So there are many wonderful and amazing GYN oncologists who are doing robotic surgery here in Lancaster and Harrisburg and in, in the surrounding areas. But I do benign GYN surgery and do a ton of it. And one of our uh, UPMC administrators many years ago said, hey, did you know that you are the highest volume robotic surgeon in Lancaster County? Wow. And, um, you know, we dug deeper into that and found that was a, an actual fact. And I'm proud of that. Uh, my family's proud of that. I take it very seriously. I have people travel to come and um, receive care. I work a lot with um, the plain community uh, where I do uh, prolapse surgery. You know, long ago when uh, when women were birthing multiple babies, you know, we, we call those grand multips where if they have more than five to nine, if they have five to nine uh, births, that's called a grand multip. Well, in the plain community here in Lancaster, we see a lot of prolapse and you can even have mm. prolapse if you haven't even had a baby. But one of the main risk factors is uh, multi-gravitas multi uh, who have had many babies. And so I do a lot of prolapse surgery, both robotically and vaginally. And so it, it's, it's kind of awesome because I take care of all communities and, and uh, build healthy relationships with uh, those communities as well. Dr. Livingston, I want to thank you for joining us on the Spark today. I, I, I'm telling you this. I, I, I could talk this for another 30 minutes. Um, I, I feel like there's, there's just so much um, to, to, to talk about, especially um, with the maternal health aspect. Um, uh, so I'm just going to ask you now, uh, can, can you come back sometime and, and we can uh, dig deeper into uh, this uh, black maternal health? Absolutely, Marquise. Whenever you invite me, I'm coming back. Oh, man. Thank you. And, and I know that our audience will be thankful as well. Dropping nuggets of knowledge, what I like to say. Again, Dr. Cherie Livingston, thank you for joining us on The Spark today. Thank you. Oh, it was our pleasure. And to you, the listener, you're listening to The Spark. Have yourself a good day.